All right, guys, we're waiting for Mike. And uh, I had a thought over the weekend to maybe do a little Stephen Colbert-esque question time before we get to the show. You guys are already here. You're waiting. You're ready. If anyone wants to throw, wants to pop a question while we wait for our guest, um, the floor is yours. If not, we'll hang out. But I got time. You're here. Let's do it. Time. We got Kyle in here. Kyle's asking questions in the back of the day. We got Brian. We got Arthur. We got Kiwi. We got Jaren. We're open for questions in the meantime, guys. So feel free if you want to check in. I'm ready. How's it going, buddy? Happy happy NBA opener to you, sir. I'm looking forward to it, man. You got a Sacramento question for me? You know, for the first time, I don't. I'm just looking forward to see what they uh, – what they come up with defensively this year, you know, with these uh, guys from the uh, Nigerian team mm-hmm. uh, making the NBA roster is going to be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I know they've got a lot of confidence in Mike Brown. Um, he was there. He was the front office's choice all along. They got their guy and they're hoping he takes a piece from Golden State and, and, and makes it happen and helps push that team back towards the playing tournament. Yeah, I've got him uh, – uh, you know, I went through the list of all the games they're playing this year and stuff, and <clears throat> I, I think they're my uh, – well, let me put it this way. I feel really good about saying that they're at least going to make the play-in tournament this year. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? Well, let's see if I can get his last name correct. Victor Wimba Wimba Yamba. Victor Wembanyama, yep. You're going to see some uh, some teams after the uh, All Star break, after the trade deadline, uh, making decisions pretty quick uh, whether or not they want to tank the rest of the season or what they want to do, depending on what their uh, where they're you know where they're at in the standings. So um, I think King's got a pretty good shot of uh, doing something this year because of that as well because they're not going to tank for that guy they want to make the playoffs yeah i mean if if you're willing to indulge me here i think sure. in some order there's the clear top tier of of teams that have been there before and, and got a little bit better we'll see we'll see about phoenix with all the uh all the situations that are going on behind the scenes there with i mean the fact that cam johnson doesn't have a contract extension right now after the whole jake Crowder dynamic I don't think is a is an insignificant thing. Um, so I mean, Golden State, Clippers, Grizzlies, Nuggets, Timberwolves, Phoenix, Dallas. Those seven, though, even even everything I said about the Suns, they were all there before and sh- and shouldn't there be back. So that's seven, leaving New Orleans, Sac, Portland, and the Lakers competing for those final three spots down to the playing picture. I do think Sac's got as good a chance as any. I, I think New Orleans is probably a bit ahead of, of the rest of that tier with Zion and, and the rest of that talent on that. I would say but, New Orleans is way ahead of Zion. Hi, is this where you go? Mike there we oh go. my God. All right. I'm on like a real podcast mic now. Sorry, Kyle. You, I didn't intro. mean to cut your, cut your question off, but um, this was a great, I mean, no, this was a great, that was a great little uh, transition and introduction into here. How you doing, Mike? 
I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Kyle, I think the Kings will make the play in instead of Portland. I agree. Uh-huh. That's meaning where that, I, what I think. You have, meaning that, Mike, you have the Lakers in there as well? I do, yes. I have the Lakers okay. in there. There you go. But um, it, it really just depends on injuries and stuff. But I think the Kings are going to be a lot like, what was that year that Dave Yeager was the coach? And they were just this like kind of run up and down. And they almost made the playoffs that year. I feel like that's going to be that kind of season this year. There you go. Kyle, that was fun, other... right? That was fun, it was right? Fun. It was fun. It kind of cemented Dave Yeager as being a legitimate head coach, doing it at the second spot of his career and in Sacramento of all places after Memphis. And then obviously the Kangs Kanged and he was no longer their head coach. So, um, Kyle, anything else before we uh, get get you off stage here and, and dive into a little bit of Mike's book? Yeah, go for it, buddy. All right. I appreciate you helping to kill some time. Not and a problem. Mike, Sorry about that, everyone. It's all good, man. The staff editor at The Athletic, one of the first NBA editors who, along my path in a giant kitchen in some Las Vegas Airbnb that SB Nation paid for, gave me some, some wisdoms that helped set me on my on my way and now has written a great book, which has far too long of a title to put into a podcast uh introduction but shall, I, shall out, I read it shall i read it yeah you do it you based do it. out how the nba's three-point revolution changed everything you thought you knew about basketball there it is funny story i i pitched that and that as the subhead and told i feel like this might be too long but here's sort of what i'm thinking we can kind of workshop this and they're like no we actually really like that there you go so um guess it's not too long they, from my experience, book publishers in the publishing industry, they want, they want grand sweeping ideas. They want things that have changed things forever, things that have totally <laughs> changed your mind, things that have been the greatest story ever. That you got to You got to put that type of you know universal hyperbolic uh, tagline under it. Well, I believe it, so it works. And it's funny, I would have probably gone with Change the NBA Forever, but that was taken by a certain other title as part of a (laughs) Triumph family of books. So we couldn't really go with that one. There you go. Um, It was built to lose how the NBA's era changed league forever. For those who are unfamiliar with what Mike is referring to, but enough intro and... uh, conflagration whatever that word is i'm tired i my uh my flight got was delayed basically five hours last night and did not get home until 3 a.m um but we're here we're ready to to talk about a lot of words that you wrote and you said you believe in your title um so i've been on the other side of this book promo tour and I, i trust me we will get to other league stuff after we, we, we do, we do Mike the solid and, and give him the chance to sell some books here. Um, so I know you got, you got to make your pitch up top before people start to tune out. So what do you believe so greatly about the topic matter, the subject matter that you chose and why did you think it was necessary to capture between two hardcover covers? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, here's a simple math equation uh, that's in the intro that I think just really tells the whole story here. Uh, the NBA court, you know, I'm going to get the actual specific numbers because I like kind of forgot them. The square, the square, the surface area of an NBA court is what 94 feet long by 50 feet wide by about let's say 15 feet up and down to account for jumping, right? That's about 13,000 square feet. That's just like, consider that like kind of the playing surface of the NBA court. So that, that way you're not just accounting for, uh, you're accounting for the area, the up and down, the horizontal game, the vertical game, all of that. The point of this book is that until about 2014, we're playing in what, a quarter of that space? Because based on where players were standing, you know, first they stood all inside the three-point line, then they stood right, maybe right at the three-point line. Uh, that was the only space that we played in. And over the last 10 years, we have basically doubled that space. Players are standing way, way further out with more open room and less space between them since the three-point revolution happened. So to me, it's really obvious when you double the surface area of the court that everyone's playing on, but you don't add more players to fill that space, everything changes. And so I just think that for all the talk of how much different the game is, we have not, there's not been one book that has laid out or one space that has laid out just how significant a change it is that you have basically doubled the width of the court, the surface area of the court, without adding more players. And what does that mean for not just the X's and O's, although that's obviously a big part of the book. What does it mean for what superstars do? What does it mean for positions? What does it mean for uh, the speed of the game? What does it mean for how you, you know, why pick and rolls are more of a thing than isolations? What does it mean drilling all the way down for, you know, how do you actually move among that space, both with the ball and without the ball? What does it mean for shooting and, what does it take to be able to shoot the ball from really far away? What does it mean for passing? You know, how you're able to see more players and what the relationships between the different players on the floor are. And the book is really just about like, hey, it's a new game when you double the space like that. And we reconsider all of these different elements of the sport, how we got to this point, which is a, very much a story based on, you know, the three-point line coming in and then the zone defense rule of 2001 and, you know, the Suns kind of, scaling up to this Rockets Warriors rivalry that takes up a whole chapter of the book. And we're just kind of reimagining the whole thing. Like are all these things that we thought we knew about the game, they made sense for a game that was played in this. I'm making a hand motion. It's not video. So you guys can see me a hand motion. That's this size. <laughs> and now you're saying that you're, it's now this size, but again, you've added no more players to play that, to fill that space. I mean, to me, like, it's just the the, conclude, the the book kind of writes itself from there. And it's one of those things that's almost, like, so obvious that nobody's really kind of said it in that way. And I just thought it was really important to just kind of make that point and to kind of illustrate what happens to every element of the game when it's suddenly played on a bigger surface. Because that, that's essentially what has happened in the last eight to ten years. I mean, when you think about how much time that is, that's not very much time. And it's just it, now that it's sort of had a little bit of time to grow, I think it was the right time to kind of assess where we're at with it and how it's changed everything. So, you know, in the, in, in the case of like kind of every book publisher wants a, a grand 
kind of subhead like that. That was I think it's I think it's legit in this case. I think we the the impact of this era on the sport is underplayed somehow, and that's the central thrust of the book. And I've I've read it very much enjoyed i've always enjoyed your writing style i was even reading through the pdf that you reset me last night on my flight that was so miserably delayed um mm. this is this is far more though than just three-point shooting right this is because yeah. this is, it, it's it's a it, it can be from, from a layman's perspective you could just sum it up as snap your fingers oh it's because of the three-point shooting but can you from your perspective as as someone who's written a book on this topic what what how much grander is this game of chess than just oh guys are shooting more threes yeah i mean i think the biggest part of it is a space it's a spatial game um the three-point shot is obviously a driver because play because of the three-point shot players are standing further away from the basket but it really comes down to, I mean, the big part of it is this kind of whole pace and space ethos of we're going to open up where we're trying to get to, which is the basket, rather than kind of jam people right around it. And whether it's via a post up or just kind of battering ram our way through, we're going to open, abdicate that space and try to rush through it. And we're going to find ways to create a situation where you need to guard 30 feet the same way you need to guard from two feet. And that whole philosophy, combined with the fact that I think the game, in part because of the illegal defense rule being changed, which is a huge subject of the book, you know, how that rule, which was changed in 2001, which essentially allowed teams to do more than just double team or play single coverage on someone, how that opened up the complexity of the relationships between the players and how they kind of interacted. It changed the way that superstars now needed to be able to map the whole floor at once and understand the relationships in a way that was different. And it's all driven, of course, by the three-point shot. Um, but one of the things most important to note is that in terms of three-point percentage, with the lone exception of the COVID year, uh, which was, I guess, two years ago at this point, the three the average three point percentage has basically stayed relatively flat for the last thirty years. What changes that people are attempting more of them, and obviously a lot of that was driven by analytics and about and by uh, improved shot mark. But it, a lot of it really is more so about what happens if we take the space that we want to get in and we move away from that, and then we charge it in some way, whether it's pick and rolls, whether it's dribble drives, whether it's other stuff. You take that philosophy and you marry that with the idea of we're going to play rather than call set plays. We're just going to play and flow and rely on chaos as our driver of whatever happens. Instead of thinking we need to control this play and force the defense to do something and kind of go from there. We think the very act of moving fast will confuse defenses because they're not set. Once you kind of change that mindset, it, it just opens up very different skill sets and very different strategies that are now part of how it works. And it just adds to the, I think the game is much more complex now than it ever has been. Uh, And obviously some people may disagree with that, but to me, they're just, it makes sense when you have more space on the court, there's more ways you can manipulate all the players to fill it and more different ways that you can kind of create threats and draw people out and all of that. And so I, I think it, the three point line is a driver of that, but it's really about the effects of what happens when people are shooting threes 
to shoot threes, you have to stand far away and take the shots. And you're standing further away, you're increasing the surface level of the court area of the court. And I think that's kind of the real the real change. And it it's driven by threes, but it's very much the effects of shooting a lot of threes are much more significant than the threes themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's I think that's the number one reason why the term gravity became so popular amongst fans once got introduced into the lexicon by way of Steph Curry and the Warriors. And you can mm-hmm. feel it. You can feel it if you if you even just play pickup at your local park when the whole when everyone the court and the whole arena and people in the bleachers even if they're a little concrete slab in the middle of some city with three rows of, of, of metal bleachers, you can all feel the, the collective gas when the ball swings to everyone, to someone who everyone knows as shooter, shooter. Mm-hmm. It creates a, a, honestly like a choreography from the defense that when they are in practice and in film sessions, they know exactly what to do within that choreography. They know their rotation, but even still, just the fear of looking at someone in the eyes or watching their, their gather from their hip being loaded up to their, their shoulder and being about to fire. It can, it can do some. I'd also say that like kind of combine that with the pace uh, being very different. I mean, one of the, even though the book is called spaced out and obviously very much the game has become about, exploiting open space creating open space and then attacking it kind of putting players in positions where there are fewer defenders in the way and there's more ground to cover I mean that's a huge part that's the fundamental element of it but so much of it is also about playing fast and being willing to almost accept the chaos that may come from it and I think a lot of coaches because the strategy and this is something that that uh ABA coaches talked about in the that are quoted in the book and something that is very much illustrated as well by, you know, one of the things that is accompanying this book is that there are graphics of like kind of the spatial alignment of the floor during certain key moments in NBA history Um, rather than, and you see sort of where everybody is at that time. When you play a game that's kind of going up and down and up and down as a coach, you're seeding control to some degree and forcing players to read what's happening in the moment but that same lack of control, what the Suns really did under D'Antoni is they turned that lack of control into a weapon. And they said, we're going to cause this sort of chaos. You won't be able to pick on what our tendencies are. And now you're going to think that there's like seven things that you have to worry about. And that will make each of those seven things more powerful. I mean, that's essentially what a pick and roll is. If you think about it, it's, we create this advantage uh, with the screen and then someone at a very, at a momentary instance, there's a four on three situation. And we, what we want to do is we just want to slam as many of those together as possible in as difficult a space as possible. And so, and find players who are able to, when that four on three is created to manipulate all seven of those players in front of them to get to the shot they want and play everybody off each other. You know, it's very different than kind of the philosophy of the 90s, which is kind of let's throw the ball inside, let's run a play call, let's execute it to the to the letter of the law, let's move slowly, and let's kind of get the ball exactly where we want. It's much more of a, a up-tempo type of game, and that type of game just requires very different skill sets and very different sort of mental processing. And you're seeing 
that is the fundamental thing that has happened over the last 10 years is you combine those two factors and you just, it's, it's an explosion and every, everything about the game looks nothing like what it did even 15 years ago. So let's bring this back to today's game. Mm-hmm. What from this book, what's the biggest lesson from this book or biggest thought that you had kind of bouncing around your brain as you were writing it, a theme that you wanted to get across that you think is going to be the biggest because there's probably several that you were constantly referring back to and think, okay, I got to make sure I'm getting this across. I got to make sure I'm getting this in here. Mm-hmm. Which, which, which of those prevailing ideas is front of mind for you as we enter this particular upcoming season tonight? You know, one of the things that uh, is in the book, the last um, chapter before the epilogue talks about defense and some, what I've noticed even in the last three years, and I think this is continuing just a fundamental rethought, think of how do we defend all this room that we are now seeding to all these players? Again, you have five players. They now have to cover twice as much space. How do we do that? And what I think has started to happen over the last few years, and it began with obviously a lot more switching with what the Warriors did, uh, and obviously switching is a huge part of it. But I think what's happening is even more fundamental than that. It's this concept of if basketball – on offense is not a one-on-one game in the same way. It's what everybody is reading the 10 relate players at once and kind of analyzing the contextual differences between them. And that sort of mental processing on those levels is as much about the relationship between the players as what's looking in front of you. Defense really needed to fundamentally rethink and adjust so that it's their five players are acting as a unit in different ways. And I think what you're seeing now is so much more activity. There is obviously man-to-man defense, but there is a zone uh, revolution that's starting to happen in the league. And even man kind of coverages, all five players are moving with the ball at the same time, covering certain spots. Uh, I think there's just a much more kind of collective mindset of how do you guard uh, these areas, whether it's you decide you want to protect the paint most, whether you want to pressure the ball, whether you want to switch contain, whether you want to double team, drop, not drop, whatever your strategy is, there's just a lot of – all five guys have to be doing it, and they have to be doing it kind of at the same time. And so there's just been a lot more what I would call kind of this collective emphasis on something kind of like a hybrid between a man and a zone. There's obviously man-to-man, but you're also just seeing like kind of guys sinking into the middle of the floor at the nail area, which is kind of free throw line extended. This idea of the low man run where – there's somebody on the backside that goes from basically the corner to the basket and the corner to the basket, depending on where the ball is. That's a pretty new concept. And to do it that's that much. And I think what what's essentially happened is that through all of this, and then you combine that with one of the, the things that I've talked about is defensive closeout technique is different because again, you're covering more space. I think that last year you saw the beginnings of defense starting to fight back. It didn't necessarily hold, but I think what happened at the beginning of the season last year where, you know, there was a lot of it was kind of credited to the new officiating rules. But I think there was something more going on there. There's, I think defenses are starting to change the way their technique and their strategy for how their five cover your five rather than we throw the lockdown guy on and or not the guy that I keep thinking about with this is Herb Jones of new Orleans. And I wrote a piece about him for five thirty eight uh, last year. 
that's a guy that like, yeah, he's a, the hope is that he's a lockdown defender in a lot of different sizes, but the part that really makes him intriguing and what I think more people defenders are going to start acting like this across the league is his arms are just super long and he just kind of gets in the way off the ball all the time. You know, he digs and recovers and digs and recovers on the perimeter. And he's almost like kind of more of a presence when he doesn't do something than when he does and he's on the ball. Those types of defenders and that type of strategy, it's a very – I think they're going to see more of those across the league. I think you're going to see more teams uh, experiment with putting taller guys higher up the floor. Uh, You're going to see a little bit more of what Cleveland did last year with the two bigs. Uh, I'm very curious to watch Minnesota this year for that reason. Uh, And I just think that they are starting to figure out, like, the two most important areas we have to cover are way out here and way in here. How do we do that? This is They're starting to find out. And I think – I'm not saying that offense won't continue to thrive in different ways, but I do think that the exponential growth is over and we are flattening out. And so yeah, that's what I would be looking for. I'm certainly prepared for there to be a discussion at some point this season of the NBA is bigger now. Yeah. Start off. Mm-hmm. Probably in Minnesota – if there's anyone looking for some free gambling advice, the Timberwolves have the easiest schedule imaginable to start this season and are pretty much guaranteed to start 7-0 as long as they take care of business. No disrespect to San Antonio, Utah, and OKC. I believe are their first three opponents um, over those first seven games. I could be a little bit off on exactly who the schedule is made up of, but those seven games are something that people are talking about. They're going to be a fun story. You know, the Rudy Gobert trade, it's going to be – one of the, the leading headlines, I would think, of the league as we enter week two or week three. Mm-hmm. Um, Orlando's already talking about playing big, and I saw there was some stuff Kobe Price did. Um, uh, Kobe at the Orlando Sentinel, if I'm correct, off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really excited yeah. to watch Orlando this year, i got to be honest. And I might be yeah. a little uh, a little crazy over preseason, but I think they could be pretty frisky this year. Um Minnesota, the one piece you, that I think is really interesting, and, and our John Krasinski wrote about a big story about him, and very much in the Herb Jones mode is, you know, Jaden McDaniels. Because when you talk about going big, there's two types of it. There's going big with, like, kind of the two bigs. But there's also what Orlando's doing, which is just, like, kind of two through four, they're massive. Right? And so this perimeter size. And, again, when you think about Herb Jones and – some of these other guys, Mikel Bridges is another example. I'm sure I could rattle off a whole lot of them. It's, you know, it's size covering kind of the wing areas. You know, a lot of teams are now prioritizing. If you get past the nail as a driver, then that's a problem. That's when you break things down. So we're going to we're gonna really sell out so that that's like kind of the, the Gandalf uh, with the Balrog in Lord of the Rings line. Like you shall not pass that line. And so you end up just sort of throwing the ball around the perimeter back and forth and back and forth. Miami was really big on this. Uh, this is how they beat the Bucks a couple of years ago. And you're going to see more of that. And so it's also that element of size that I'm really curious to watch develop. Uh, I think the league is in particular getting bigger at the two through four slots. Um, and, you know, that was something that I remember Steve Clifford told me years ago um, when I was asking about the Warriors and, Whatever he was saying, he didn't understand how people said the Warriors played small ball because from two through four they were so much bigger than everybody with Agadala, Draymond, uh, Kevin Durant, Sean Livingston, Clay Thompson. That was it. Wasn't that they played small? It was that they kind of redistributed their size and center all the way across the perimeter. So it just you couldn't get through that first line of defense. And 
I think we're going to see more teams take that strategy. Yeah, and I was reading this in Kevin O'Connor's profile of Daryl Morey at the Ringer the other day. There is this notion that um, the league, some people think the league might be a little bit boring now and that the shot profiles of most teams are pretty identical, right? Everyone's looking mm-hmm. for basically corner threes, shots in the paint, and the mid-range is only really available to, or you know, people are only really encouraged to the masters of it, the Chris Pauls of the world. Um and Daryl's counter argument that he gave to to, um, to Kevin, which uh, I've definitely heard this from several other people, but Daryl said it so perfectly, is that well, the the way you get to those shots has never been more different. And I think that's I think that's a good place for the league to be in this year, stylistically between the lines. Forget about the Intel stuff transaction game that we always love to talk about. I think it's interesting that they're, the league is kind of showing that there may be one way to best skin the cat, but you can do it with an infinite number of tools. Um, and I, I like yeah. that different teams are choosing different approaches and different tools that are available to them. Yeah, I saw that quote from Daryl, and I, I love it. But I, I also – I've been thinking a lot about that concept. I, you know, A lot of people have asked me in the, the build-up to this book, like, a version of that question like is a league just too homogeneous with all these threes and whatever i think there are a couple ways to answer that question i mean the one that i keep talking about and this is in the book but think about who was the uh who's the two-time defending uh mvp this coming into this year nicole Jokic. who won the finals mvp for the first time last year man i'm trying to remember who won it no steph curry uh, and who was kind of the breakout star, young star last year? John Morant? Yes. And there we go. Three for right. three. Think about, and then beyond that, I mean, think about like kind of who is like kind of who won the finals MVP a year ago and who's a two time MVP? Our, our friend in Milwaukee. Yeah. Now think about that. We live in a league where someone who looks like – and by the way, oh, one more to this because now this is even better. Who's like kind of the guy who's getting the most buzz this year? Like the, the young guys get – Zion. Who's the guy that everybody is tanking for? Like the one by an alien. Think about how different those six people look. And they are yeah, all no, great, thriving in this league. To to and on some level to hear the homogeneous thing is a very bizarre thing when you consider that we are living in a league that is not. I mean, it, yes, okay, it's dominated by like tall wing players, I suppose, but players of those different shapes and those different backgrounds are starring. I think I don't think we've had anything like that in NBA history, and I think that's sort of the beauty of the sport. In some ways, again, if you increase the space that's on the floor that you're using you're just going to find more ways to use that space in an interesting way. I mean, it's just math. And I think that is reflective of that. The thing I'll say, and I think what squares this contradiction a little bit, relative to what I think a lot of people are used to with basketball going back 10 years, it does look homogeneous because it looks all looks very different, right? So like kind of if that's your, your standard, I mean, the game just doesn't look the same. I mean – it's like kind of you have a bunch of asymptote curves on a graph. I don't know if this this is working for everybody, but bear with me. <laughs> and you have like kind of at one point, like basically it's a curve where like you start with exponential growth and that levels off. 
But then imagine you have like seven more of those on top of each other, right? We're basically seven levels above where we were 10 years ago. So by that lens, everything looks homogeneous because the, the standard is not like what I'm used to. But within that and that single asympto curve, there are so many different ways that, to Daryl's point, people get the threes. Uh, people get the shots that they get. You know, Seth Partnow, our friend who's also a, a Triumph editor, uh, publisher, also likes to say the map is not the territory. I think that's a really important point that should be stressed. But I can understand someone looking at like kind of the basketball now versus the basketball, te- you know, forget 10 years ago, let's say 20 years ago when you those when you grew up and just everybody's so different from that. So to make the jump that everyone's homogeneous, that I can understand where that comes from. It takes a little bit more of like kind of going through a fine tooth comb to spot the differences, you know, the, beyond the very obvious differences that everyone plays super differently than they ever did before. But if you're able to do that, I think you will find a ton of stylistic diversity. And most importantly, you'll find just player diversity, you know, in terms of play style, all these different types of players that are thriving in this league. And to me that, I mean, just think about the fact that like Zion Williamson versus Victor Wembanyama is a matchup. I mean, can think about that for a second. Like, can you imagine two more different body types and play styles? And they'll probably guard each other at some point in their NBA careers. It's pretty wild. And this has been a pretty nerdy conversation from an author of a pretty nerdy book. Well, I hope I hope it's not too nerdy. <laughs> I must I got I got a I think I might have failed myself. What I was going to say was my my transition to our closing was going to be that uh I think having having read the book, I think you do a great job of writing about nerdy concepts in entertaining and layman-y understanding ways. So, um that's my pitch. You've made your anything it. else you want to say? Anything else you want to plug? before we get you out of here uh no i mean obviously go by the book is out november 1st um it's something you can pre-order now i mean i think the the key point is you know basketball is a complicated game but it's really not that it's a simple game as well you know and i think one of the things that i try to do with the way i write is it's not really about the what any of these teams do or whatever. It's more about the why. And at the end of the day, the game is still about, you've got five players against five players. How do we create, turn that into five on four to four on three to whatever, and then take advantage of it. And it's just the means for how that happens have just changed significantly. And the skill set within that and the strategies of all that, that those have changed. But like at the end of the day, it is kind of that fundamental question. And once you consider that, and then once you consider that it's a game that flows continuously. So it's not like football. You don't stop and diagram a play. What one thing builds on the other, how, how you do something, how fast you move it, how much you flow makes a huge difference. Once you kind of internalize those two things, I think it's something that anyone can understand. Um, and honestly, the big motivation for me to write this is I just don't think that we, as analysts, have done a good enough job kind of squaring that to be able to kind of be – it's not even reducing something to a simple concept, but it's just – it's really as simple as more space equals more ways to use that space. And then from there, everything flows from there. And that that was kind of the goal of the book is just to be able to show folks that 
both with the graphics and with the way that it's being told, that to double the playing surface makes a huge difference and it just creates these downstream effects. And you don't really notice that it's double because you're you may not your eye may not look that way, but that's really what's happened. And you know, I hope that this will help people fall back in love with the sport. I think there's just been a lot of angst about how the style of play has worked. And my goal is to just kind of get people to kind of understand it a little better and feel like they can appreciate it a little bit more. So hopefully if you're a skeptic about the NBA right now, I think this is the book for you. There you go. All right. I forgot my, my, my tradition though. It's only fair. I asked you a bunch of questions for over probably approaching 35 minutes after we uh, do some mental math with the technical difficulties. Um, do you have any questions for me? It's, it, you don't have to, but I feel like it's only. Fair. Do I have any questions for you? Um, did it ever get, uh, did you ever get annoyed when people didn't represent the book as you wanted to be represented? Um, no, I think ultimately, like I do, I do stand by the thought that the goal of writing is to communicate at the end of the mm-hmm. day. And if you don't get the messages that you want to get across that no matter no matter how much you can claim art or prose or whatever, then you have failed at at the at the task. I um, agree, absolutely. I do think that I do think that people, when it's a book rather than like a story, people want a book to be something necessarily like 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 they do want it to be something, whether they start reading it and they have certain. You know, they read three chapters and they're like, okay, this is what I'm expecting for the last 10 or whether they started from the beginning or they get to the finish and they're like, okay, here are some questions I want to, I have now thought of, and I hope the author addresses, what have you. Um, If there are things that people wanted you to do that just weren't within the frame of what you were trying to get across, I think that's okay. But if they miss your point, then, then you've, then you fucked up. But I think you're going to probably see a ton of people in reviews and whatever say, oh, well, I wish this book did this, or I'm disappointed it didn't do that, but mm-hmm. that wasn't your goal from the beginning. Then I, I think that's fine. I know, like, I just had a lot of thought of, like, kind of, I can't get everything in here. It, 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 yes. If I, there's so much that you could put in a story like this. And I, I mean, look, I think about this too a lot with editing stories. And I think we've talked about this with stuff you've done and stuff other people done, you know, the number one thing that a great story does is it kind of keeps the reader on a track. And that was kind of, I found that to be very challenging throughout the book writing process, because there are so many ways that you could have told this story. There are a lot of teams and a lot of players that are not mentioned as much as I think people would expect in this book where I definitely thought like, does this person, how if this person was influential, but what were they influential to the kind of type of stuff I'm talking about? So there's going to be a lot of, I mean, that was a huge challenge for me is just like kind of getting everybody, getting the people in that I wanted, trying to figure out who were the people, the most influential uh, folks and telling their stories. Like there's, um, this was this came to a head a lot of there's a chapter that I'm really excited about about sort of the art of dribbling and stepping and the zero the zero step and the euro step movement and just this idea of how 
the big idea was essentially players don't dribble the way they used to or move. They kind of take their steps and then dribble and just this kind of step manipulation. And it was, I, the, the obvious place to start with that would have been Manu Ginobili. And there's a lot of Manu in there, but the guy I actually started with there is Alan Iverson, you know, because I, I made the point that his hang dribble, his crossover was kind of the first thing that made people realize like, Hey, we can change kind of the tempo of our dribbling and movement. It was really Allen Iverson. And that was a, that was a very challenging chapter and very challenging decision to make to kind of take the reader from Allen Iverson to Giannis and James Harden and uh, all the players with the Euro steps that they do and all that. But, you know, that was, that was a chapter that took a while, but I'm sure there are plenty of people who are going to look at like kind of player pioneers in that chapter and wonder like, Hey, where's this guy? Where's that guy? And, you know, it's just hard to fit them all in. And, you know, you always, when you write a book, you want to be comprehensive, but like you can't possibly get everything. You know what I mean? And that's the part that I had to learn to accept. And I hope people will accept as well. There you go. All right. His name is Mike Prada. He's the best. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you, Mike, for popping in here. And good luck with the book, man. I hope it. I hope it. I hope it does well enough for you to feel like all the work was validated. Uh, thank you. I appreciate. it. Sorry for all the technical difficulties. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for all the the help you provided off screen throughout the process. No worries, man. No worries. We will be back on Friday. At 3 Eastern with the great Sam Amick. And until then, enjoy the games. Buy Mike's book. And we will talk to you guys soon.